This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Hi, welcome everyone. I hope you enjoy this reading for National Poetry Month. I would like to um, thank the library for hosting and for liberal arts for supporting us. My name is Carrie Millsap Spears. I teach composition and literature, and I would like for all of us to welcome our guest speaker. Um, this is Dr. Matthew Brennan. He's a professor of English and director of graduate studies at Indiana State University, um, where he teaches composition, creative writing, world, and uh, British literary sur- literature surveys. Um, he's a noted scholar of romantic poetry and the Gothic. Dr. Brennan won the Merton Prize for Poetry of the Sacred and has collections in print, most recently The Light of the Common Day, uh, The House of the Mansard Roof, and The Sea Crossing of St. Brendan. So I hope you can join me in welcoming him to Moraine Valley. Oh, it's really great to be here at Moraine Valley. You really have a beautiful campus. I really enjoyed walking around on it earlier. And um, um, I wanted to thank Dean Franzak for making this possible and Janice Polson for making arrangements. And I wanted to thank uh, Cheryl Bundy and her student poets for letting me crash their class last hour. And I want to thank my former student, Carrie Millsap Spears especially, um, about 10 years ago, I realized there were certain kinds of poems I needed to start writing because in my classes, I always made my poetry students write a poem about an art object. And in the building I teach in and where my office is, uh, the walls are lined with these art objects from the Depression. There was a program run by the Works Projects Administration that actually paid starving artists to produce art. And they tend, these works tend to turn up in uh, uh, state and federal buildings. So anyway, I mean, people would walk down the hallways and they would never look at the walls. So I started making my students write about them. And then I realized I should probably start doing this too. Uh, so the first poem I want to read is called Girl in Dressing Gown. And uh, I guess another objective I had when I started writing these poems is I was getting sick of writing about myself. I mean, I know my life's not that interesting. So I wanted to find other things to write about. And so I got interested in these works that were done in the 30s. But a funny thing happened. They turned into personal poems anyway, because I started imagining the lives of my parents and grandparents during the Depression. So I wrote this one uh, in memory of my mother. Behind the girl in the dressing gown, the sun is going down. Across the room, a dress outspreads against the door, the way it did in the downtown shop where blue and luminous, it hung untouched by human hands until she tried it on. The girl's hands are crumpling gently, a small piece of paper, an emblem of her heart, squeezed like a sponge flush with sorrow but one that can spring back if she wrings it dry. It's a birthday note whose words she yearned for and has read again to test their worth. She's holding back the tears, her shoulders hunched, eyes open but glazed. She stares into a murky space somewhere out of focus, the habitation of her past which just won't move away. 
It's where her father's lived since she was eight, when after lunch and a late matinee, he drove her home, too drunk to keep the wheel straight, swerving side to side, the Packard steered by his wobbly knees and her wide-eyed, fine-boned help. The next two times, he stood her up. Sitting again in her ruined glory, the girl in the dressing gown keeps her curved back to the window and averts the light so bright with promise that it places her face into a folded page of old familiar shadows. Uh, Part of this poem was based on a story my mom actually told me, but I kind of changed some things. Uh, The main part of the story actually happened, except it was her brother who was driving the car. So I never showed this to my cousins because I knew they would object to my changing history. Uh, But sometimes poetry tells its slant, as Emily Dickinson said. And uh, Richard Hugo has said, you know, you owe the truth of reality not much, but the feelings you write about everything. So if the poem needs for you to change something, if you believe Richard Hugo, you should feel free to do it. Um, Another poem that I wrote about WP Artworks was based on some murals by Ben Sean. And actually, when I started this poem, I thought the whole poem was going to be objective. Uh, It's basically about these murals depicting aspects of prohibition which, as you know, was the period in the 20s when it was illegal to uh, consume or produce alcohol. But, of course, it happened in back alley joints all the time. Now, there's just a couple things I probably need to explain here. I don't mention St. Louis in the poem, but that's where I have it set in my own mind. And I actually refer to uh, a place called Bevo Mill. Anheuser-Busch thrived during the Depression because it smartly decided to make something they called near beer. I guess it must be something like O'Doul's or something. I don't know. But uh, anyway, in St. Louis, where the Bush Brewery was located, they had a restaurant called Bevo Mill, and they called the near beer Bevo. Uh, The other thing, just to make clear, is I refer to two past presidents, Herbert Hoover who, of course, had the poor fortune of being president when the stock market crashed and the Depression started. And then I refer to Roosevelt, and there I don't mean Theodore, I mean FDR. So prohibition. Well, actually, what you're going to see happen in this poem, I'll just give it away right now, is I start out objectively describing these murals, but in the course of writing the poem, I started thinking about my grandmother. So it kind of became a poem of family history also. In Ben Sean's depression mural, the feds force foaming beer from 16-gallon kegs down an open drain. It flushes through the city's sewers and mixes with rainwatered muck that runs into the river, whose black, viscous surface suds at night like mugs of Guinness stout. Ben Sean leaves the rest untold, the feds lowering their fedoras' brims and sidling from afternoon light into the dark booths of some back alley joint, its windows boarded, its door unmarked like bottles they pass back and forth. At home, my grandmother, divorced and poor, but lifelong loyalist of Hoover's ilk, sips her last glass of bathtub gin, 
then makes her first and final radical move. She'll throw her vote to Roosevelt and vows never again to swill near beer at Bevo Mill, but never forgot those nights when under stars she danced away her sober youth in the arms of men with chests like beer barrels, empty and dark. Um, sometimes when you're looking around for poems, you realize they're right under your nose and you never realized it. Probably the most important thing for any writer is just to be observant of the world around you. And I eventually realized when I was trying to write more objective poems that all I had to do was look across my alley at the house that had been decaying for decades. And it was like an inherent subject. Uh, so I'm going to read you the title poem to this book, The House with the Mansard Roof. Um, actually, the painting on here doesn't have a house with a mansard roof, but uh, this is close to a mansard roof. It's a flat top, and you usually have windows coming out on the uh, steeply sloped sides. Well, in truth, the house that's behind me across the alley doesn't have a mansard roof. But I was trying to evoke the image of a house that in its heyday in the late uh, 1900s was really splendid. So I just let my imagination create something which isn't true. Uh, but I actually read this poem once in Terre Haute where I live, and people wanted to know the address of this house because they wanted to go look at the master roof. Uh, and even one woman who heard this and wanted to go see it was related to Louis Mansard who invented this roof for the king in France in the 1800s. So you've got to be a little careful what you make up, I guess. Okay, so the house with the mansard roof. The house behind us waits for better days. It's been betrayed eight times since we moved in ten years ago, but was built long before the road was paved. The mansard roof, which rises high above both homes flanking it, reflects the past. The shingles shine like silver plates in early morning light. <clears throat> the western walls wear shingles too, but in the shade, their jagged, nubby meth teeth. Below, the back porch sags, weighted down by decades of deadbeats who trash the place and then bolt, grinning through a pickup's greasy glass. The art out back becomes a mudslide when it rains. No matter who's passed through, They've left a landfill of their lives, furrows of beer cans, butts, and rained-on chairs. But now the furniture and trash are gone. The windows, blocked with plywood boards, keep out the light. And yet the inner rooms are rich in darkness, like black earth beneath the sills, where weeds with bright white lace have taken root. I think most poems actually, whether you're conscious of it or not, start from some deep feeling you have. And as you try to find a subject that can accommodate the feelings, sometimes something that maybe is very personal to start with just comes out in some different form. A um, good example of this is my poem called The Sublime. Um, it started out extremely personally. Uh, I have a painting my mom did, which hangs right by my front door. And when I started writing this poem, 
Uh, it was her birthday. And uh, it's a painting, though, that always reminded me of the work of the British artist J.M.W. Turner. So what I did in the poem, though, is I wrote a poem about Turner, but what I was really feeling and thinking about is my mother. So anyway, uh, Turner supposedly on his deathbed said the sun is God. He got up every morning of his life religiously to watch the sunrise, and almost all of his paintings have either a setting sun or a rising sun. Uh, but scholars think he probably didn't really say this, but he should have. Okay. So the sublime, the sun is God, J.M.W. Turner. When Turner lay dying, his curtained bed budding against the shuttered glass, he saw light landing on the window ledge like rain, just out of reach. His dry, paint-splotched hand opened to hold the golden glow. He closed his eyes. He dreamed of barges and freighters docked. Leftward, a row of domes, smokestacks and spires. Rightward, a vacant pier that juts into a bay of haze and black waters, and all on fire from blotches burning far beyond, toward which the ship in the center moves and grasps for something to tug it from the coming darkness. So nobody could ever guess where that poem came from, but it's kind of interesting once you finished the poem to look back and try to figure out what was the process? How did you get from the very first inkling to what you end up with on the page? Um, um, another technique you can use if you get sick of writing about yourself or you can't think of interesting to write about yourself is to actually write about somebody else. And you can sometimes do this uh, in the first person, just as you would write about your own experiences. Uh, it's called a dramatic monologue or an interior monologue. And it can be a historical person. <coughs> Excuse me. It can be a character in some other novel or movie. Or you can just make up somebody. Um, I was reading an interesting biography of the uh, essayist William Hazlitt, who had a really chaotic life. Uh, fun to read about, about it. You wouldn't want to live it yourself. But anyway, I decided I would write a poem in his voice. So it's called Hazlitt in Love. Uh, Parted from my spouse, my marriage dead, I found new life within a boarding house. The tailor's daughter knocked. Then, oh, uh, let me start this over again. One thing you need to know about Titian is that one of the things he liked to write about was art. So he was like one of our first really important art critics. Uh, so I'll start that over. I, I think you need to know that. Okay, Hazlitt in Love. Parted from my spouse, my marriage dead, I found new life within a boarding house. The tailor's daughter knocked, then filled the frame like Titian's Venus. The teapot she'd touched gleamed after she was gone, and as she left, she paused, turned fully round, then ran her eyes right through me. Is he caught, she thought? I was and am. That brazen gaze had made me mad. I cannot work. All things in nature, art, the dingy streets, call up her face and trace the circle of her waist. Though friends may think her eyes are slimy like a snake's, and others that she's bony like scrag ends of mutton chops, 
I'm bit. I've lipped her as she sat upon my lap. Um, um, I have another poem sort of in intent like the Hazlitt poem. Uh, This one is about the Trappist monk Thomas Merton um, who lived in the Gethsemane, Gethsemane uh, Abbey in Kentucky uh, in the monastery. And uh, his journals, which he kept, were published long after his death. And I, I used one of the journals for this poem. Uh, he apparently, during the last two years of his life, he actually had an affair with some woman he just wrote about as the letter M. Uh, so anyway, I, I wrote about how he got into this Obviously, something very necessarily clandestine since he was a monk. Um, I also, you might notice I wrote this as a sonnet, so you might hear the rhymes in it. It seemed appropriate for a love poem. Uh, Merton in Love, June 1966. Two months ago, bedridden at St. Joe's, my body numbed, my racked back fixed. I woke and met M's eyes. Love struck? Had I a choice, I dove into the waters where each stroke plunged me into greater depths. What's real is inmost. Since we borrowed Brother Jim's unlocked sedan, I've been reborn, can feel in us the freedom of the woods that brims over every branch and naked root. Though we'll get caught like sophomores, she'll linger in the subsoil of my wild mind. I doubt a lot but not that each twig feels her fingers. Love lives in solitude. M's touch has powers the abbot cannot ban, even in cold showers. Another good source of poems sometimes is just your own past um, but sometimes you get ideas that also can uh, come from other people's poems. I had a friend who uh, he was the librarian at Indiana State, where I work, who had fought in the Vietnam War. And he wrote a poem about one night when he's trudging through rice paddies looking up at the moon. And the crux of the poem is that, is that it was the same night Neil Armstrong took the first human steps on the moon. So by keeping the moon in the center, he juxtaposes what's going on with him in Southeast Asia and the astronauts out in space. So I kind of took that idea and uh, I wrote a poem called The Summer of Love, which is about 1967 in San Francisco when hippies came from all parts of the globe. Supposedly, this was going to be an idealistic summer of ideal love. But, of course, people got hepped up on drugs. There were all sorts of overdoses. Anyway, I don't put that into the poem. Uh, But I contrast what was going on in San Francisco with my own innocent adolescence. Uh, Just a couple of references to make sure you get them. Hayton Ashbury, of course, is the place in San Francisco where everybody congregated. Uh, I refer to Allen Ginsberg who was the famous beatnik poet of those days. And uh, I also referred to the actor Peter Coyote, 
Uh, this is before he became a famous actor. He was there, and he was organizing these dinners in the streets because all these people converged, and there was many of them had no money, so they actually had dinners just right there. Oh, and one other, I refer to one of the lesser-known bands of the time. Um, <clears throat> of course, it was the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane. I referred to the band Quicksilver. So they were all part of that San Francisco scene. So this is the summer of love. I was 12. Fields of sleep and splendor sealed me in a world just born and blooming. Flower power in San Francisco turned on hippies at Haight and Ashbury, drugged on Ginsburg's mantras. Deadheads who danced and jazzed for love had visions fed by acid while Coyote fed the hungry diggers' dinners in the streets, Quicksilver's music coursing through the air. I tuned into KXOK, grew hair over my ears, and fell in love, dreamed dreams of lovely Sally, leggy, blonde, and hot for me. The mere idea made me high, and all that summer of love ends, I lived in my head, heady, happy, never kissed. So, it's supposed to be an ironic contrast. Um, um, another poem directly from my past. Uh, I don't know how I started thinking about this, but when I was a kid, my dad took all these home movies on a little Super 8 camera. And uh, I've never forgotten the images from my seventh birthday party when my mom had all these people over, my cousins, and she constructed this pirate theme. So that's what this is about, home movie. I'm seven, eye-patched and brandishing a rubber knife while my mother waits, cake cutter in hand, for me to blow the eight candles out. I'm antsy and can't sit still, but fill with air. She's dark-haired again, blue eyes blinded by the sun gun's glare, but shining, her teeth glow white as crossbones on a pirate's flag when it meets the morning light. I remember so vividly how the tiny flames flashed in both our faces that I now forget what's next. Her fleeting touch on my little arm, my chance to empty out my lungs and make the burning moment vanish. Well, some people would say that this poem's nothing but sentimental, but uh, I think you've got to risk sentimentality sometimes and uh, sort of go with what you think is going to make something that pleases you, if nobody else. Um, let me turn to uh, a couple of poems about my father. This is a baseball poem, and um, I grew up loving baseball. That was the passion of my life as a little kid. I know I'm in Cubs country, but I'm still a Cardinals fan. Uh, but I always liked the Cubs. So, uh, But there's one detail in here. I, I was just amazed when somebody said they didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, when I get in the second stanza, I describe... My own memory of playing a game when the pitcher threw a change. I say, I call it uh, a grapefruit change. Okay, well, the change means the change up. 
Okay, where the pitcher has the same motion as a fastball but grips it so that the ball comes out of his hand very, to move very slowly. And then the idea of it being like a grapefruit just means it's one of those moments when they say you're in the zone and the ball comes in, you're so focused, it's like it's two or three times as big as it really is. Okay. Maybe I didn't need to explain that to all of you, but I thought I'd better just in case. So, Memorial Field. I'm standing on a hill high behind the batter's box where my brother digs in alive. His full count tip tumbled from the catcher's web. The stars are out, and in deep left, a new moon's rising. Like the grapefruit change, a guy named Grace threw me here three years ago. My father missed that game, the June that cancer ruled his skies. But now he's telling me how good he feels, his night shining once again, like insects swarming in the August glow below us, which will not dim until the game is over. My brother stunned by a roundhouse curve. Um, what I describe about my brother striking out to end a baseball game never happened. I just used him for that in the phone. So he forgave me. Okay, and then the next poem about my father is uh, it's based on a story he told me, one of the only ones he ever uh, revealed about his experiences in World War II when he fought in Patton's Third Army. Um, he just never would talk about it. Although after he died, and we found his discharge papers, and at least, I don't know if it's true or not, but it stated there he had won four bronze stars. But anyway, uh, he, the story he told was a moment when he wasn't quite so heroic. And I call the poem Turning Point in the European Theater because from the historical point of view, it's kind of the climax of when the Allies gained dominance over the Nazis. But... The joke of the poem is that it's a turning point in my father's life and as a result in mine since I did want to exist. You'll, you'll see what I mean. Turning point in the European theater. New Year's Day, 1945. My father marched with Patton's army to the Western Front. The weather cold as a meat locker, raw and threatening sleep. Next day, they watched as snow fell and fell and the Moselle River turned to ice, while generals far off planned to push them across the Siegfried Line and into hills dark with Nazi snipers, and from there to victory. Here Dad would later pose by walls unraveling, their threads loose and frayed. Behind him in the river, Hitler's bridge, one side already sunk in frigid waters. But weeks before in France, Dad thought he'd freeze while sleeping. Patton came to kick their butts and boost the troops' morale. My men can eat their belts, he growled, and anyone who loots, I'll shoot. Yet, Dad had sneaked into a vacant house, quickly grabbed two woolen quilts, then stepped outside. At once, he pressed both shoulder blades against the doorless jam and held his breath. Not two arm lengths away appeared a jeep in back of which sat Patton, just then turning his head when the jeep jerked right to avoid some ice, like a marksman startled by flares 
who lifts a hand off the gun to shade his eyes. I'll read another poem about my brothers. Uh, I guess this was kind of a fond experience. We went on a uh, canoe trip in southern Missouri over an Easter weekend. And I guess it was one of the last things we did together before we all were grown up and got scattered. So this is called Remembering the River. Easter weekend, we had decamped for the Ozarks east of Joplin. The current river, almost flooding its banks, bounced us across cascading rocks and white caps that foamed like wild dogs, that kept us afloat and led our little fleet downstream, as if tethered to a leash, until we rested on still waters. Silent as sleep for thirty years, their memory lay in wait, but wakes me now, making the mad rapids rise again. I wanted to read uh, a more recent poem. Um, since I mentioned Joplin in that previous one, um, I wrote a poem last spring. Uh, in Terre Haute, we had a really bad storm after the horrible tornadoes in Joplin and the Birmingham area. They didn't call ours a tornado, though, but the pattern of destruction looked like one, and somehow uh, we weren't hit, but people just across the street were. So this is called One Life. Oh, and I'll just say one thing as a footnote here. is uh, We have two trees in our backyard, a purple ash and a poplar, and we actually name them with uh, mythological names. So the purple ash is Daphne and the, the poplar is Apollo. One Life. Once more the aftermath. Last week a line of winds leveled our town. Clear-cutting trees as old as Vigo County's oldest home. Before, we had lost a dying bark-scarred oak. Our other trees still stand. Amid the whir and buzz of saws and chippers everywhere around us, Daphne and Apollo, purple ash and poplar, stir in the breeze, but stay unflappable. Their branches arch above me like a nave, and now a silence spreads about. The wind animates the higher limbs, lifts them enough to let a slant of light slip through their folded hands and land on each green leaf and me, the trees translucent as stained glass. Well, since Carrie is a diehard equestrian, I think I'll read what might be my only horse poem. I'm not sure. Um, this is called Derby Day, A Childhood Memory. And again, this is a poem which really is, an, maybe I shouldn't tell you this. This is an example of a poet kind of making something up. I mean, I remember watching the, the Derby when I was a kid, but what I describe in the poem, I'm not sure if it ever happened. But it always could. Waiting for the last jockeys trotting toward the starting gate, 
You press the slotted glass against your lower lip, sipped, then assured us it didn't matter who would win. It was tradition that you liked, shoots of bluegrass, the sheen of Bell's chapeau, a chilled mint julep or two, anticipation building. As the race began, you took another sip. This is the year we watched a stallion trip and throw its rider, then, still stumbling, limp to the end. The lad who fell and broke his hip never rode again. The Goodyear blimp then showed the oval downs, the bird's-eye view, my vantage when I drink and think of you. Well, I'll read two more, and then uh, if you want to ask any questions or make any comments, we can talk about that. Um, this poem, uh, Night Our House Comes to Life, um, I actually wrote this poem about 25 years ago. So it was an older poem, and I put it in this book, which came out in 2009. And uh, my older brother re reads this poem and tells me, hey, I think you're starting to get a lot better. So anyway, nights our house comes to life. Some nights in midwinter when the creek clogs with ice, and the spines of fir trees stiffen under a blank frozen sky. On these nights, our house comes to life. It happens when you're half asleep. A sudden crack, a fractured dream, you bolting upright. But all you can hear is the clock your great-grandfather found in 1860 and smuggled here from Dublin for his future bride. A being as unknown to him then as she is now to you. A being as distant as the strangers who built this house and died in this room some cold, still night like tonight when all that was heard were the rhythmic clicks of a pendulum and something barely audible moving on the dark landing of the attic stairs. Um, this next poem I'm going to read is written uh, for Donald Hall and in memory of uh, W.D. Snodgrass. Two really important poets beginning in the 1950s. Um, W.D. Snodgrass won the Pulitzer Prize in 1960 with a famous book called Heart's Needle. And it was really one of the books that launched the movement of confessional poetry in American literature. So... He kind of started that trend of poets writing about their own personal lives, sometimes with intimate detail. Uh, and the poet Robert Lowell actually got the idea to do it from him. And then they were in classes together with Sylvia Plath and Ann Sexton. Uh, but anyway, uh, where I teach a few years ago, we had both of those poets on campus at the same time. And they read at the same time, side by side. It was a historic moment. And uh, so what the poem was about is after the reading, um, I had to get something out of my car. When I came back, I saw them walking to this farther parking lot, uh, just kind of loping along. Um, you know, the light is starting to set. And there was just kind of a brilliance and a poignancy to the scene. 
So this is called Regarding the Old Poets After the Reading for Donald Hall and W.D. Snodgrass. Lagging their hosts by 50 feet, the great ones bent by abundance, laden like fruit trees in fall, lug their bags of books, limping. A pair of sapling pines has framed them and fixes their forms where western light ignites the path they pace along, bathing them in brilliance. I hold the glow in mind, then turn away before they shuffle into the parking lot, over-ripened with shadows. Well, does anybody have any questions? Oh, yes. Uh, hmm. That's a good question. I, I do have a poem about uh, my late cat. Actually, I have two poems about my cat. Um, you know, a lot of poets write about birds. I'm not sure I've ever written about a bird. Uh, oh, I know. I do have another one about animals. I'll read it, if you don't mind. Um, this is called Weekend Retreat in Brown County. Sunday, in a bleak October light, we drive toward town, toward famous Main Street's knick-knack boutiques. We pass trees dripping from night's hard rain, their blonde leaves glinting like beaten gold, and wind along a curvy creek, edging abrupt bends and loops, when gravel grips us in a bottlenecked S. Before us, two deer staring like statues through the glare of tinted windows. And then they enter a crack in the wild woods. Quickly, we park and walk across Bean Blossom Bridge. It lifts us over the teeming creek and leaves us amid crowding brush and canopies of pines, nine yards from where the buck and doe had vanished. But now we've lost our path. We either turn back toward town or improvise a way to cut through the new growth, which long ago closed us out of the woods' darkness. So I don't know. I might have a couple other on animals, but that's all I can think of right now. Should I write more on animals? <laughs> yes. Hi. Yes, I have written poems about uh, my son. Uh, let me think. They're probably, uh, more of them are probably in my earlier books. Um, uh, but I wrote one poem about when he had a horrible fever. And uh, it, it, the poem develops the idea just, you know, as a parent you feel helpless. You've got this little being who's suffering. There's nothing you can really do. And it just made me think about how unlikely it is that any of us ever get born. It's like we're just splinters off of some ship floating in the ocean and somehow we reach, a sh reach the shore. I mean, it's kind of incredible when you think about it. Um, I didn't bring it with me. I have a poem I wrote recently for my grandson, uh, but I don't have it, so I can't read it. I didn't memorize it yet. 
Yes. Sounds like you didn't have a mentor to begin with because you had a strong background. But what advice would you have for beginning poets? Well, uh, the most important thing is reading. Finding poems you really like, wish you had written. That's, that's the best thing. When I first started writing poems seriously, I got a notebook and I would tear poems out of magazines or Xerox them out of books. And I would just read them over every once in a while and I think, you know, this is kind of the way I want to write. And I think some people are afraid of that, thinking they'll be too influenced. But it never happens that way. You are who you are. You're unique. You're going to find your own way to write. Uh, so that was one thing I did. Um, I never had a poetry workshop, uh, but I had a really good intro to lit teacher who taught me how to read poetry, and he also had us write a couple poems in that class. Uh, I don't think he really was a professional poet, but he wrote some poems himself, and so he was really helpful. Uh, and I had another class when I was in graduate school from a poet who had been in the New Yorker and some places. Um, I don't think I ever showed it in my poems, though. I should have. That was one of my regrets. Uh, the other thing is, I think, find some other people, you know, who write poetry and share your poems with them. Um, that's one thing I did in grad school. There were a bunch of us who were studying literature, but we wrote. And we'd get together every month or two at somebody's house. We'd take turns, and we'd read our poems to each other. And... Sometimes, uh, you know, ask for comments or something, but just getting the encouragement really sometimes was the best. I think reading about poets' lives sometimes is helpful, too. You realize what they go through. They're not all, you know, writing down brilliant things every moment. Yes? Um, did anybody inspire you to become a poet? Um, you mean someone I had read or someone I knew? or? Okay. You know, that's a good question. I think what inspired me to want to be a writer most was actually the short stories of James Joyce and uh, Catcher in the Rye, the novel by Salinger. That's what really made me want, you know, to work with words and stories. I'm not sure if there was a poet. I think I just discovered that uh, writing poems was better for me because... You can sit down in an hour or two and have a draft of a poem. If you're writing a novel, you know, you're looking at years. I, just, I guess I sort of like being a sprinter rather than a marathon runner. Um, but, you know, I eventually started when I was in college. I would just roam around the shelves in the library. I'd grab poetry books off and stand there and read a few poems. That's how I discovered W.D. Snodgrass. I never heard about him in a class or anything. I just stumbled on him in the library. So maybe he was an early uh, influence, I think. Anything else? Yes. What do you do when you're kind of burnt out as a, as a poet? You recently you said personal writer's block or something like that. Yeah. Well, that's a really important question that every writer has to deal with. Uh, some people say, you know, you should write every single day. William Stafford is kind of famous for that. It works for him. I don't write every day. I really kind of wait till I'm really in the mood and have the time. Uh, but I think a really good thing for writing practice and for getting into the mood to write poetry is keep a journal. Because there you're really unguarded. You know nobody's going to be grading this thing. 
No one's going to be judging it. And you can really develop your poetic skills in, in a journal, writing about memories, dreams, things you observe. You can practice techniques like alliteration. And you'll find, I mean, I've gotten a lot of subjects for my poems by going back into my journals. And I read some, re, I reread something and I think, oh, God, that could be a poem. Um, so that's one thing you can do. I think sometimes, uh, just you know, if you like to go for hikes or uh, listen to music, almost anything that can relax that critical, judgmental side of your brain, get you drawing on the right side, that can get you where you're, you know, tapping more easily into your feelings and the imagination. So kind of figuring out what those things are is helpful, I think. But I think if you sit down and you really don't feel like riding, the best thing is go do something else. You know, go ride your bike or something. It'll come back to you. Well, thank you all very much for having me. You're a great audience. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.